Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle and happy International Women's Day. It's March 8th. A uh, very important day in the calendar for women. Now, in normal times, we'd have had some kind of real life event to mark the day. But as we know, these are not normal times. So last Thursday evening, we hosted what I think was a really wonderful event for International Women's Day. We did it live on Zoom and Facebook and thousands of you joined us. And it's fair to say we'd never have been able to fit you all in to one venue. So at least that's something. The theme for International Women's Day this year is Choose to Challenge. So our event was based around the challenges and they are very uh, many and varied, the challenges that women face. We called it Overcoming, an evening of storytelling. And joining us on the night were women like Alva Smith, Brianna Parkins, Emma D'Souza, Nisha Dolan, Natalia O'Flaherty, Aoife Martin, Rosemary Kunena, Lord Mayor of Dublin, Hazel Chew and Senator Lynn Ruan. Now, you can watch back the entire show on the Women's Podcast Facebook page. But today we wanted to bring you some highlights from what was a beautiful, challenging and we hope inspiring evening. Before we start, I also want to thank all of you who joined us for the launch night of the third season of The Big Night In with Mary McAleese on Saturday night, who was incredible. And tickets for The Big Night In are still available if you go to irishtimes.com forward slash big night in. And if you buy a ticket now, you'll get a link to watch Mary McAleese back and you'll also be able to go to the five remaining Saturday night events featuring women like Maeve Higgins and Tolu Mackay. Now, later in the episode, I'm going to bring you my conversation with opera singer Celine Byrne, one of the stars of Lab OM, the opera that is live streaming from the Borgosh Energy Theatre this Saturday. But before that, let's start our highlights from overcoming an evening of storytelling to mark International Women's Day. First up, Aoife Martin, a trans woman and activist who also writes a regular column in the journal, told us a story about swimming and the simple, powerful act of getting back into the water. Some time ago, someone on Twitter asked trans people what they would do if cis people didn't exist for a week. The replies were remarkable for their ordinariness. The commonplace, everyday things that most people take for granted are often difficult for many trans people. Going out in public, trying on clothes, using a public bathroom, buying makeup, getting your hair done. The one response that cropped up time and time again the thing that many trans people said they would do if there were no cis people around was to go swimming. 
It was heartbreaking to realize how many trans people denied themselves this simple pleasure because of how they felt about their own bodies and because they were afraid about how other people would react to them. I knew exactly how they felt. Growing up, most of my summers were spent at the beach. I know we tend to romanticize our childhoods, but the geography of my own childhood memories is mapped by the names of places where I would swim. Port, Salterstown, Seabank, Dunaney, Clarehead, Blackrock, places up and down the County Louth coastline. I was comfortable in the water and I taught myself how to swim, mostly by trial and error and by watching my father and copying how he did it. Public swimming pools were a rarity in those days, swimming lessons rarer still and probably not something my parents could have afforded anyway. As I grew older, I stopped swimming. I told myself it was because I was too busy that life had taken over. Yes, there were swims here and there while on holidays or during a work trip if the hotel had a pool, but I was lying to myself. The truth was much more complex and related to my gender dysphoria and body dysmorphia. When I transitioned, it seemed even more unlikely I would ever swim again, but I couldn't get rid of that yearning, that freedom of being in the water. I spoke to friends about it and they said, just do it. Some even offered to go with me, understanding my nervousness at swimming in public. But if the thought of entering the water at a beach surrounded by strangers was nerve-wracking to me, the thought of doing so with someone who knew me and knew I was trans was even more so. And so, like most trans people, I denied myself one of life's simplest and most spiritual pleasures. In the swimming club, Nick Finnegan's documentary about a group of trans people who meet at a local pool to go swimming, one of the participants says that the reason trans people don't swim is because it's difficult for trans people to enter public spaces because their bodies are different and there's often a misunderstanding. And yet watching this documentary, I can see the sheer joy and pleasure these people took just from being in the water. On the 1st of January 2019, like many people, I made my New Year's resolutions. Well, resolution, really. I only made one that year, and that was that I would, at some point, go for a swim. Five months later, I went to my local pool, paid the fee, and did just that. But like that, it sounds so simple. No biggie, right? But it was preceded by weeks of agonizing. When was the best time to go? When would the pool be at its most quiet? What swimsuit would I wear? Would people stare? In the end, stubbornness won out, and it was a spur-of-the-moment decision. I went in the evening. The pool was quiet. I wore my dark blue swimsuit and nobody stared. It was all so normal that I even questioned why I'd been worried about it in the first place. But of course, it is a big deal. A huge deal, actually. I had overcome huge anxiety to get to this point. I was determined that it wasn't just something I would take off my list and not bother again. Over the next few months, I swam on a semi-regular basis. But it's one thing swimming at the local pool and it's another thing entirely swimming at the beach. This was something I was determined to do. I arrive at the beach early in the morning. There's no one else around except the couple of people in the distance out for a walk. There is no one in the water. I'm beginning to doubt myself. Maybe I should have come at a busier time when I'm less likely to stand out. Anyone swimming at this time of the morning is going to be noticeable. But then again, that stubbornness prevails. I undress, I'm wearing my swimsuit beneath my clothes, set my eyes firmly on the sea and begin walking towards the water. The sea is cold at this time of day, unwarmed by the weak early morning sun. I'm not someone who dallies around trying to warm up step by little step. My reasoning is that if I'm going to get into the water anyway, why prolong the agony? I walk determinedly on. When the water is above my waist, I immerse myself under the waves and start swimming. It's gasp-inducingly cold at first, 
But after a few minutes, I warm up and start to enjoy myself. There's something magical about being in this new salt water. I float there, head back, looking up at the blue sky, watching the odd seagull pass overhead. It's magical, and for a time, I forget all about this troublesome body that I occupy. I'm no longer a prisoner of my own flesh, but free like the gulls and herons above. In her review of Body Sweeze Why We Swim in the Washington Post, Alice Stevens describes it perfectly. Free from gravity, free from clothes and all the material trappings of daily life, free from earthbound clumsiness, free from eternal stimuli, like the Who's Tommy, I am deaf, dumb and blind to everything but the watery environs and the unbridled flow of my subconscious. Later, as I'm drying myself, a woman out for a walk stops and asks me, Did you go in? How was the water? Cold at first, I say, but lovely. Good woman yourself, she says, and walks on. That was Aoife Martin there. Thank you very much to her. Next up, former Sydney Rose and Ireland AM reporter Brianna Parkins told us about her time spent working in retail and about her amazing mother, Lorraine. Okay. So for about a 10-year period in the mid-2000s, I pissed off a lot of middle-aged women. Only one of them was my long-suffering mother. The rest, because they were either my managers or my customers, my various low-paid retail jobs. I was what they call a checkout chick. So I scanned things, and at the end of the day, I would add up the money in the till, and to the frustration of everyone, it would always be wrong. I hated it. I had to work with the public. who seemed to see someone wearing a name badge as a sign that they can be an asshole to them. In retail, you can only tell someone to get fucked a certain number of times. That number is zero or one if you say it really fast then deny it afterwards. My colleagues were all women in their 40s to 60s. They all seemed to have the same four names, which is Sue, Dawn, Val and Deb. They are the only names women were allowed to have in Australia in the 60s and 70s. So initially I annoyed them and they annoyed me. I wanted to leave work on time so I could go and shift a boy or study for my leaving cert because I worked two retail jobs while doing my leaving cert. Um, And they wanted me to tidy up the lingerie department, which meant fiddling with tiny little G-strings and putting ugly bras into size. And you had to space them exactly two fingers apart. And they would go around and check at the end of your shift. And one Val said to me, it's about taking pride in your work. And that should have been a beautiful teaching moment about an elderly lady taking dignity where she could and passing on this lesson. But I was on $8 an hour and I wanted to go home and I didn't want to hang up over the shoulder boulder holders anymore. And I also knew that if Val dropped dead on the floor, the manager would have stepped over her body and the two finger equally spraced bras on the rack to ask me to cover Val's shifts. So as high school went on, I was a lackluster teen goth and a twist that shocked no one. I struggled socially at my own school with my own peers, my own age, but I did have a big girl gang at work, albeit it was one that made jokes about being incontinent and having cellulite. In the break room, these grown women would tell me about their marriage woes and I would counsel them. Again, I was a teenager. You should leave him. He's threatened by a light and that's why he's trying to dim it by cheating on you. I was 16. I wore a bra that held up nothing, but I had watched Dr. Phil repeats and my own boyfriend had shifted another girl to school disco. I too had known pain. I too knew what it was like to hurt like a woman. In return, they protected me from the creepy older manager who thought it was appropriate to offer his tax return for me to have sex with him. Again, I was was 16 and I still remember the amount. It was $6,000. And these women would sweep in whenever he would be on shift and protect me like a protective guard um, with perms and smelling Elizabeth Taylor's white diamonds. 
they taught me the the single most important skill to working women, which is sometimes you just have to laugh and walk away from an inappropriate comment because the other consequence is either getting assaulted or fired. More importantly, these women reminded me of my own mum, Lorraine. Lorraine was a bank teller for 30 years. She just retired this year. Before that, she worked in shops. Really, she took any job she could because in the late 70s, she was a single mum at the age of 19. I used to be embarrassed that my mum was only a bank teller. My mum worked in banking, I would say, as if she oversaw huge you know, trading floors or, or finances rather than the lodgement of Mr. Constantu's fruit shop daily takings. I'm now ashamed to say that because what she did do had a more positive impact on the day-to-day -day lives of people around her. The first thing you should know about Lorraine is that she's pure inner city dub, so she doesn't give a shit what anyone says and she does what she wants. So before, during and after the financial crash, she refused to push financial products on customers who couldn't afford them, despite her job demanding sales quotas. That even brought in a humiliating sales chart for stickers. Her sat defiantly at zero until she bought a chocolate coin and stuck it on herself in a last two-finger salute to the company. She would take the time to break down complicated terms and conditions to people whose first languages weren't English, helped fellow immigrants on their path to the great Australian dream of having financial security. She made an impression on her colleagues too. At one stage, her favourite colleagues were three Arab Australian girls in their 20s. She nicknamed them her princesses and tried to adopt them from the sound of things. Legend has it that when a customer said something nasty and deliberate about a young colleague's hijab, mum nearly jumped the counter in a rage, but instead settled with a sharp tongue response, probably something about taking his money and shoving it up some kind of unfortunate orifice. My mum, through her class, gender and birth date, had been denied a fair go at even finishing high school, never mind uni but didn't stop her from becoming an activist. She was a proud union official rep. She fought for the rights of her colleagues. And when I looked at my feminist heroes and thought to make a difference, you had to go to uni or write books or ride an ugly French bloke maybe like Simone de Beauvoir and write books about it. None of them worked in, in shops or factories like the women in my own family had before me. And I thought my activism could only start once I left home and got a degree and stopped wearing a name badge to work. But when you look at movements across the world, like England and Australia, the women who fought and won for, for equal pay were working class. They were factory workers. They were either uh, Ford workers in England or uh, Wollongong steel mill workers in Australia. Sometimes we forget about working class women when we talk about female CEOs and, and government leaders. But looking back at my own mum, I know that true bravery is not picking a job that you love or getting on a list of influential women. It's having to turn up to a job that you were too smart for for 30 years so that your daughter had a choice not to. These days when I go to the supermarket or the pharmacy, the reception area at my doctors, I see women, working women like my mum, the ones keeping the country going while the rest of us are hiding at home, the childcare workers, the nurses, the teachers, all heading out to different front lines. So to them and my mum, I say, I see you and I thank you. Thank you very much to Brianna Parkins for joining us. And next, feminist activist Alva Smith told us about her struggle with anorexia and severe depression in her 20s in the 1970s and about the impact that time had on the rest of her life. I'm going to talk about um, a tough time and there have been a few, but this one is back in the 1970s, the early 70s, when Obviously, I was a young woman. I'd worked very hard to get a degree. I got a job in UCD and then I got married all in double quick time, all hunky-dory, tickety-boo, success, you name it. But of course, it wasn't really. No sooner was I married, just about six months, when I fell apart absolutely spectacularly. 
And somehow the fact that this was happening to me, that really I was ill, wasn't noticed. And I think that was because anything difficult got pushed under the carpet back then. And people didn't want to notice me falling apart and being ill. Not even when my wedding dress kept having to be taken in because I was getting thinnerer and thinnerer and thinnerer. But very luckily for me, um, an aunt of mine who's a doctor spotted that I was only skin and bone. And I was shipped off to St. Pat's Psychiatric Hospital and diagnosed with anorexia nervosa and very severe depression. Now, for the first six months or so, I was very heavily drugged. And I remember really practically nothing about that time. It's like this big blank space in my life. I was ill for quite a long time, but I had kept my job in UCD and that was truly a miracle. And when I began to get a bit better, I was in and out of St. Pat's for three, four years, doing my teaching in term time and then going back, as one does, in the holidays for for treatment. Now, not surprisingly, uh, my marriage ended. But of course, that was unheard of in those days. Remember, that was way, way, way before uh, divorce. So I was really lucky to have that job. And I'm really aware that it was my middle class privilege meant that I had that job. Apparently, at the time when I was in hospital, I was very much given to writing letters of resignation to UCD, which um, very sensible friends said they would post for me. But of course, very fortunately, again, they never did. At the time, you know, I think very little was known about what to do with people who are anorexic, how to cure it. And I had all kinds of drugs treatments, including ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, which absolutely wrecked my memory. And I also had hypnosis. And I, I do slightly remember that because I I know I refused to go under. And I think there was a little gleam of a rebel coming out somewhere there. And oh, by the way, I also make a very good lampshade because we had, you know, weeks and months and months of occupational therapy. And the only thing you could do was make lampshades. It was very hard on my family because mental illness was very deeply stigmatized then, even more than it is now. There was a lot of shame attached to having a mad person in your family. That had to be hidden because Ireland was very, as we know only all too well, very deeply mired in fear and shame. And of course, it was a very painful time for me. You know, I missed out on so much. You could say I really missed my 20s. And I keep thinking of all the young people in their, you know, late teens and 20s and early 30s. And I really feel for you very much. Um, And of course, to my intense frustration, even worse, I missed out on those early, exciting, fabulous years of the women's movement. And I've never really got over that. But quite seriously, it has taken me years to come to terms with all of that. And it's still really a work in progress to try and understand why that happened. Why did that happen to me? But I think a key part of it was that something inside me just couldn't or wouldn't cope with being the sort of woman that I was expected to be, that I was raised to be nice and well-behaved and docile and obedient with no feelings and hopes and desires of my own. Some part of me then tried to escape. It it wasn't right. I couldn't do it. I didn't fit in. I was a failure. Back then, I didn't know how to fix that. I didn't know how to fix me. The only thing, all subconsciously, that I could do was to disappear myself. I did get better. 
with help, with care, with probably a fierce fair dollop of stubbornness, and also the women's liberation movement. I always say it saved my life, and truly it did. It was blissfully erupting around me all the time I was ill, and I could see gradually that there were far more ways to be a woman than I had ever dreamed of, and that they were all, they were all, all right, and shape and size had nothing to do with any of it. I could just be the woman I am myself. It didn't happen overnight, but it did happen, and I did come through. And now whenever I get a bit of a dip and think I can't stand it anymore, like round about now, I think of that young woman who was me, and I take heart, and I put one foot in front of the other until the sun comes out again, and I can dance and shout and stamp my foot and get on with the business of living. I have to say that it turns out total coincidence that this is Eating Disorders Week and the great group uh, Bodyfies are tweeting about it, which is how I know. And I want to say to everybody that treatment is infinitely better now, but eating disorders for girls and young women are rampant and they're fomented and they're fanned by the massive beauty and fashion industries, and of course, by toxic social media. We haven't cracked that yet, and we really have to do that, you know. Very happy International Women's Day to everybody. Thank you for listening. That was the voice of Alva Smith there, repeal hero and all-round legend. Finally, from our highlights reel from International Women's Day, we hear from Senator Lynn Ruan, who told us, a powerful story of how she used her imagination, ingenuity and creativity to overcome the challenges she faced in formal education. Take it away, Lynn. So I was I had to really think about this because I suppose I'm not even joking when I say I have very openly spoke about challenges a lot and I use them as a way for people like to identify how to overcome them. So I have spoke about a lot of the challenges that I've um, endured throughout my life. But when I thought about uh, you know, you kind of, you want to be able to hit different pockets of conversations all the time. So I try to drill a little bit into thinking about the idea of, well, you know, my counsellor always said to me that um, that never to regret anything that I've done, that even the challenges, everything that ever has happened and who I was at the different parts of my life, that little girl that made, you know, whatever decisions that she made or got involved in what she got involved in is the same little girl that got me to where I am today. So I began to think a little bit about her and be thankful to her because even though she came up against challenges, some of them she probably caused herself. She found her ways around them, over them, through them, and and she kept pushing through to find a way to the other side, to find a way to succeed, to flourish, to be happy, to be all of those things, to be a better person, better woman, better mother, better daughter, all of that. And I kind of got to think, well, how did I do that? And I suppose for me to overcome each challenge, I used the challenges I'd already experienced to overcome each challenge. And I thought a little bit about the time that I first engaged in addiction education um, at the no, addiction education and formal addiction education. Obviously, I had a very practical experience in addiction education. <laughs> so, but in the classroom. <laughs> So um, when I went to, to IT Talent um, and I was too young to do the course in any way and I kind of fought my way onto it. I was probably claiming age discrimination or something because I was supposed to be 23, but I found my way on. And I remember when it came to the, the written work and even though in primary school, I was quite capable of education and in secondary school, 
I probably would have been quite capable of, of, of engaging in education, but I was quite traumatized. So I didn't, I missed a lot of that formal education. I didn't really engage in the classroom from the age 13, 14. So the very basics of English and grammar and spelling and all of that. I think if I hadn't have experienced the things I would have had that I experienced, I would have been quite a fine student. And um, so I didn't have any learning disabilities or difficulties in terms of dyslexia, but I might as well have not have, not have had any um, education beyond like tortian, um, which had its impact. So by the time I hit 17 and I was studying addiction and it came to um, writing an essay, um, I even though I probably would have gave it a shot and it would have been fine, I kind of knew that I had to work my way around things that I didn't really know what was being asked of me. I didn't understand what they were saying in terms of like referencing or bibliographies or, you know, referencing particular theories. And I was still experiencing a huge amount of trauma. So even my ability to be able to find that out was too much. You know, them words even coming at me was too big, too much, can't do it. But I still knew I was well able and deserved to be in the classroom but because of my experiences in life whether they be traumatic whether they be having to be resourceful whether they be like when you live um with a consistent level of threat in your life whether it be to violence or death or whatever you develop an acute sense of you know foresight it's like you can nearly look into the future sometimes you're so sensitive to trauma you're so sensitive to emotions to feelings what's going on and I had all those skills I had all these resourceful skills that I had to build to get through my life so I had to find a way around education um, and I had to find a way around it without probably really exposing myself that I didn't know what was being asked of me and so what I began to do is I began to make video essays and instead of asking if this was something that I could do, I told them, well, it makes more sense that we do that because everybody else in the classroom was writing from a theoretical standpoint and they're talking out of textbooks. And I think the success of the course is really going to be built on real live experiences. So instead of me referencing academics in the field, I think I'll reference users of drugs in the field. So I began to like, um, we built this extension on my house when my dad got unwell and um, I, I got like a video player and all my friends were very, very new on the heroin scene and I had them all in my mom's room <laughs> and we done a whole documentary <laughs> instead of writing an essay on addiction. So we were all kids. I was 17. They were 15, 16, 17. They were all on drugs, all on heroin. Some obviously goofed off every now and again middle but it was very real it was very practical it was this this is the real experience of people in addiction this is what we experience this is how we feel and you know you hear even in school still oh why do kids turn to drugs why do kids turn to drugs and I'm like well did you ever ask one while they're on drugs why they're on them like you know instead of waiting and trying to look back retrospectively so we had a real deep conversation with my friends about like their different experiences of what what they forced, why they first took drugs. Mostly it was fun. Nobody likes to hear that. They want to have some big traumatic event behind or some big social or environmental, but actually it was an enjoyment thing. Might, when you look back, have an escape element to it and that's why you're seeking the enjoyment. But at that very basic understanding of a teenager, you're going, I enjoyed this. 
this is fun. I can be with my friends in a group. No one else understands us. So we're going to be just over here in the corner with a radio listening to Tupac and Stoned and everyone else can go away. And there's a there's a tribal element to that, you know, and there's a there's a together element to that. So we discussed that in the video and I presented this obviously as my end of year um, kind of project. It was supposed to be like a, a you know, probably a 2000 word essay. And I had this cassette player where we actually looked at the lives and made my own little mini documentary in my mom's bedroom. So the reason I chose to pick that really was to kind of take my experiences and place them in the wider context of society, right? So my experience is that I was creative. I was resourceful. I could tap into ways around things. And some of those were developed through not very good means. I was a shoplifter. I was a drug user. I was a drug seller. There's certain parts of your brain you have to use to make your way in a life like that. Logic, reason, critical thinking. How do I not get caught? How do I get this here? How do I do this? And how do I do that? And they're all the same skills that we use in every area of professional development. We're just using them in a way that's not going to be productive for our own lives. And I wanted to tell that story, I suppose, to begin to widen out that conversation around hearts and minds and understanding that working class communities have some of the most entrepreneurial people on the planet and how do we take that entrepreneurship and open up avenues and for them not to be judged on their past discretions or their minor convictions or anything that they've ever experienced before and take the challenges that they've experienced and overcome and find a way for them to be able to utilize them in mainstream society because those skills are there and when I go into prisons and people talk about but I've no skills Lynn I'll never get a job and I'm like you are the most skilled person that I know and it's about how we reframe that for people. Do you know what I mean? And that's why I wanted to hone in on that one story, because I wanted to talk about how the challenges we face also give us skills. Now, sometimes we shouldn't have to face those challenges. So I'm not saying that it's a bonus to face them, but I'm saying we face them and we develop this skill set and the rest of society needs to move forward and us being able to utilize that skill set from the challenges that we overcome. That was Senator Lynn Ruan there. And we hope you enjoyed listening to just a few of the amazing stories we heard last Thursday night. We do really try on the women's podcast to be as inclusive as possible. But it was pointed out to us after the event that we had had no traveller women represented on our panel. And we know that was an oversight and that there are ways that we can do better in terms of inclusivity. And we hope to do better in the future because we're always trying So if you have any subjects you'd like us to cover or great women you think we should be talking to, do email us thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. And really, we want to wish you a happy, a very happy International Women's Day. Now, you won't know this, but this time last year, opera singers Celine Byrne and Paula Murray came in to talk to us in relation to Carmen, the opera. But the show was then cancelled because lockdown happened and our world changed. So we never actually brought you that interview. But I'm delighted to say we had lyric soprano Celine Byrne back via Zoom to talk about her latest project, which is Puccini's Lab OM in the Bordgosh Energy Theatre this Saturday. It's going to be a live streaming, of course, not an in-person thing with a socially distanced 62-piece Irish National Opera Orchestra, as well as a chorus and a gorgeous children's choir. Full disclosure, my daughters Joya and Priya happen to be in the choir and it's going to be a magical occasion. Celine 
is recognised nationally and internationally as one of opera's great stars. She's proudly flying the flag for Irish talent on the international operatic scene. She has performed through Europe as well as in America, China, Russia and Mexico. She's performed for Barack Obama and sang with Andrea Bocelli. And this past year has been challenging for her as it has for so many people. So we talked about that and about the joy she feels at being back on stage and back at the heart of opera, which is her enduring passion. Here she is, Celine Byrne. We were a week away from going into the Borgash to do stage rehearsals and open that weekend when we got the call to kind of shut it down to, to stop everything. So, yeah, it's surreal that it's one year later. And actually, it is kind of funny because here we are one year later. We're picking up from where we left off. Different opera, same venue, but it's all it's the same opera that it's the last opera that I did before the lockdown on stage. So it's all weird. It's now my next one. So I feel like now that I'm back to work, I do feel that the year has kind of erased itself in a way. Interesting. Yeah, I know what you mean. And I remember when you were in, you were very, it was a week before we all kind of, everything locked down, I think. And you were very, even then, like the idea that you might get it would be a disaster for you for obviously professional reasons. I was very wary of, um, I'm most very wary now. I'm not like an OCD kind of hypochondriac weirdo kind of person. not saying that anybody who's like that is a weirdo. I said, I find it weird for my personality because I'm not like that, but um, I would be very wary of um, of germs because obviously if I pick up anything, even the slightest cold can affect me because they get like, if you want any like bacteria or viruses on your, on your sinuses or anything like that, it can really affect your singing. So I'm always kind of, I'm always washing my hands, sterilizing my hands and being careful. Like I was always very careful touching surfaces and stuff like that because I knew that you could pick up viruses. So yeah, it's just a continuation of that, I suppose, to the extreme. Yeah. Well, listen, tell me about the past year before we start talking about the, the next opera that you're in now. How has the last year been for you? Well, your listeners can't see me, so I'm smiling away to myself. But between my gritted teeth, I'm saying shit. It was shit. And I, I know that's a really bold word and I shouldn't be saying it. And I'm actually now crossing, blessing myself. Also, We're allowed to say all the words on, on the women's podcast. We let all the words in. So don't worry. It's just, it's been tough because um, it's, it's actually, do you know what? It's actually been a mix of things in a way. Uh, well, it's documented and I don't mind talking about it. Um, in a way I've had, I've had a history of uh, mental illness in the past. So in a way I've come through the pandemic a little bit better than most because I've had these coping mechanisms already in place to deal with such things. But what I wasn't prepared to deal with was the loss of my father, the loss of my mother-in-law, the loss of my friend, the loss of my work, which I thought, okay, it's going to come back soon. And that soon I thought was a couple of months and it just seemed to be never ending. And yeah, I, I I missed out on my passion and my source of like expression. And you know how people go for a run and they release their endorphins and all the adrenaline rushes and stuff. For me, it's been on the stage. And also I love traveling. I love going to see people. I love going to different places, doing a different contract in a different country and getting to know everybody because I love the chats. I love getting to know everybody. I love going for walks and going for dinner. And uh, I missed all that. 
Now I was happy with my bubble. Like I'm lucky enough that, you know, um, it's nice actually to live with my husband and three children. <laughs> but it's it is has been very challenging at times. Yeah. And I've had to deal with a lot of things uh, and great, great losses. And I would I would actually uh, say that losing my job and losing my father were the two biggest losses. Yeah, it's tough. Talk to me a little bit about that, because I think a lot of people listening know that experience of losing someone in the pandemic. And I mean, I know personally just friends of mine who lost their mothers or fathers. Uh, it's it's just been very, very, it obviously was a huge loss anyway, but the pandemic mm-hmm. kind of compounded things. And the fact that you weren't able to grieve and do the normal rituals that people are usually yeah. able to do, did that, do you think that added a lot to the trauma? It did in a certain way in regards to the fact that my mother-in-law was in hospital with terminal cancer when she contracted the coronavirus so it meant that when we went to see I couldn't see her now I was privileged enough that she lived with me and I got to see her before she went into hospital but she essentially she died in hospital and I felt sorry for my husband and his family trying to go and visit her with full PPE gear and it must have been frightening for her also you know thinking that you know she wanted to hug from her her son and here comes somebody dressed like an astronaut like she would have been aware that the virus was around but not fully aware of how extreme it had gone to be with regard to wearing full PPE gear and all that things um and then you juxtapose that with the with the death of my father which obviously was an uh wasn't very pleasant experience but at the same time I got skin on skin I was able to hold his hand as he passed and I know the numbers were weren't either were, were restricted for for funerals and everything. My mother-in-law wasn't able to have a mass because of the fact that she had COVID. So she had to go from the hospital to her place of rest. But actually her blessing at the grave was so beautiful. I think it would have been nice, it was nicer than any funeral mass I'd attended. And I attend a lot because obviously I'm part of the music ministry. Um, with regard to funerals and stuff like that. So it was really beautiful. And the weather was lovely. So when my dad passed, restricted numbers again, but still it was lovely. And a lot a lot of people lined, lined the street and lined the village and stuff like that. So I will say, even though I mourned their death, it was a very beautiful time. Yeah. Um, you also had a daughter doing the leaving cert as well. So another thing that affected your family that was tough on her yeah as well because I didn't want to burden her with my sadness or my you know uh, I was mourning the loss of my father was very close to him and my mother-in-law who lived with us and I didn't want to put that on my children and I always tried to kind of hide it because I tried to show a bit of empathy with regard to the fact that my daughter was going through a traumatic experience having spent so many years with all her friends and then not being able to do her leaving not being able to say goodbye not being able to have her debs not being able to have the you know the signing of the shirt, the burning of the tie or whatever they do. And uh, and now I have that same problem now with my son, although he's delighted. He doesn't get to do his junior cert. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think we've been affected. I've been affected in many ways by all elements of what could happen during the lockdown happens. Yeah, that's what I think. I think you've, I mean, ticked all those bloody boxes, the worst boxes yeah. that you can possibly tick. Um, and now you're back back at work. But before we talk about uh, Lab OM, my yeah. my daughters are in it and they keep giving out to me because I keep saying Labo Hem and they keep going, Mom, it's Labo M. So uh, what's the well, pronunciation? The, the Labo Hem is, is the, what we would, I think that's the English pronunciation where we pronounce the H. 
but La Boheme is it's French yeah, or it's like Italian, but it right. it comes from La Vie de, La Vie de Boheme. So Boheme. Yeah, you've got to make I'll sure do that. I'll do just call it what you like. Yeah, well, that's what I say, but they're very, they're very hard on me, Celine. Um, but anyway, tell me about before we go on to that, about how you got into singing in the first place, because it's something that you always did as a kid, wasn't it? To, to entertain yourself almost. Never mind yeah, anyone else. I don't else. want to bore people because I think people know this story before well, anybody. You know, we've never know had it. the full Celine interview on the women's <laughs> podcast. So, you know, forget everything you've done before and just tell the women's podcast listeners. <laughs> okay, good. Well, we'll make it short. And <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I loved singing. It was my way of expression and still is. But I found that at a very young age that that's the thing that I love to do. I was never one of these people that went for a run and felt better after it. And going for a walk was detrimental to my mental health because I was always having conversations with myself. <laughs> so um, singing was my kind of way of like you know, if I very kind of got like annoyed or kind of, you know, when you're a teenager and you're confused and stuff, I'd just be like, I'd just start singing. And, and somehow I was brought into the world and distracted by by the, the being engaged in singing and then didn't worry so much about my problems. And I suppose I always sang. And then when I was 18, I didn't know what I wanted to do after I left school. So I went to Italy and worked there as no pair. And I was singing in the house, as you do, couldn't stop, couldn't shut me up. And then they bought me tickets to go see an opera. I went to see an opera. I went, wow, I'd love to do that. But I'm from the country and very naively, I didn't know that you could get your voice trained. Yeah. Like I knew Mary down the road taught piano. <laughs> and sure, June knows somebody who knows somebody who teaches violin. But you're like, I, ha- I hadn't got a clue. So um, what was, was the opera I- you went to see, Celine? I haven't got a clue. Don't know the name of it. Don't know. I know it was an opera. <laughs> Because it was in La Scala, wasn't it? Like it was La Scala. Sure, look, I didn't even know La Scala. I like, I just thought it was just some random like opera house down the road. I didn't know it was like now. Obviously, as an opera singer, I'm thinking, wow, La Scala, how amazing! (laughs) I didn't know at the time. Very naive. And uh, you see, you can take the girl out of the country, but not the country out of the girl. But um, any case, I said I was going to make this short, and now I'm making it long. I went to opera. I went to an opera, fell in love, kind of thought, wow, this is something I'd love to do. Came home and decided then that in college, I definitely wanted to do music. And when I enrolled, when I actually applied for college, I wanted to do theology, philosophy and music. I asked about, um, so I may know where you can get singing lessons or what, how you can go about learning opera. And they were like, well, you're in the wrong college, love. This is my news. I think you need to go to Dublin. <laughs> And I said, really? And they were like, yeah, I think you're more suited to this course. So I went and I enrolled in the DIT and started my training there. And the rest is history. Brilliant. And you have, you mean, it was, it was one of those, your passion and your thing that you had as a kid and and that you used to console yourself with became your profession. And you've been really, I mean, your talent has taken you all over the place, hasn't it? I mean, give us a flavour of some of the, some of the operas and some of the jobs you've had. Sure. So it was a hobby to develop into a career. And that career has brought me to from uh, the Hermitage in Russia, concerts with Jose Carreras uh, over 10 years. I've worked with him. I've sung in Carnegie Hall twice. I've sung in Hamburg. I've sung in Covent Garden many times. And my claim to fame, as my father would say, was that I got to sing in Croke Park. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was the biggest gig I ever did. <laughs> and what was that for, Celine? Oh, it's for the semi-final because no one ever gets to sing at a final, you know. Um, 
And I'm sure my dad was delighted. He thought, like, telling everybody, you know, Celine sing a national anthem in Croke Park, you know. <laughs> Don't mind that she sang in Carnegie Hall or Covent Garden. No, no, no. She's yeah. singing in Croke Park. That's it. <laughs> Career made. Okay, listen, tell me about Le Bohème, because some of our listeners won't know. I hope I pronounced it right. Um, They won't know Labo the story. So, so yeah, yeah, I think it was, was, was it one of your first roles that you had or was before? It was actually. I made my debut in 2010 with Le Bohème. And the role of Mimi, uh, it's the it's the one I've sung the most, and it's the it's the role that I'm actually in love with. I love all the music by Puccini. I really have found my my way with the music of Puccini. It's just so fantastic, and I love singing it. It's that style of singing is verismo style, and that's what I love to do. It's a very passionate, I'm very passionate person. I'm very I, I wear my heart in my sleeve and what you see is what you get. And I'm very sensitive. And I think that, you know, uh, that helps with the music because I just give myself to the music and it's so easy because it's written so beautifully. So um, the story is about, um, well, it, it surrounds a group of friends, a, bo- a group of boys. And uh, out of those group of boys, there's a boy named Rodolfo and a boy named Marcello. And Marcello has a kind of an on-off relationship with this girl called Musetta. Um, she's a bit of, um, I don't know, she, she's just, I want to be nice to her, but <laughs> uh, she knows that the boys like her, you know, right. so she's always, you know. So she's going from Billy to Jack, you know, or whoever's going to buy dinner for her that (laughs) night. You know, she'll spend time with them. And then uh, we meet Mimi and she lives um, near Adolfo. And it happens that one night her candle goes out or does it? Does she do it on purpose to meet him? She goes that she goes down. Look at the Irish accent coming out. She goes downstairs. (laughs) She um, goes to meet Rodolfo to ask him, can he light her candle? And... It's kind of love at first sight and it really is love at first sight because by the end of the first act, uh, she's saying that she loves him and they're going off for a um, little time together. Oh, yeah. What does so Musetta make of all the this? love story. Well, Musetta then comes in the second act and that's where I meet her for the first time. And I just think, wow, here's this girl. She's amazing. <laughs> and um, we see the relationship between her and Marcello and they all become a big group of friends and then what happens in the end is that, well, we know from the start that Mimi is sick. <sighs> and then um, I'm not giving anything away because, you know, most operas end in tragedy anyway. But in the end, she dies of the coronavirus. So, um, <laughs> OK, that's right. the end of her. <laughs> they both... She dies of uh, TB. OK, yeah. the equivalent, sort of similar, not too, not too far away yeah. from back in the day. Yeah. I think if we were staging it, it'd be brilliant. We could actually do the coronavirus thing. Deadly. Yeah. yeah. Corona. Deadly. Corona. It to, sounds good. They'd have to pay me double then for directing as well. <laughs> I think you should get on that, definitely. And there's something there. You've got a socially distanced 62-piece Irish National Opera Orchestra, which is amazing. And they've got a chorus and you've got a children's choir. And I did mention my two children, which you didn't know, Joy and Priya are actually yeah, in that. Yeah, I didn't that. know they were in it. Yeah. They just did a little bit for me. Yeah, yeah. 
Ecco papignò, 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 con il carbetto tutto fiol. Ecco papignol, 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 papignol. Voli la trombe al cavallino e tambor e tamborel. Voli la trombe a frustino dei soldati di rappel. My um, partner, Johnny, has a newfound love of opera. He just started going a few years ago on his own. And it's the most unlikely thing. He's this guy from Portadown. He's never had any knowledge or interest of opera, but he went to one that they were in, actually, and he just fell in love. And now he's like someone who listens to opera. I just find it really interesting. But I suppose opera was always just of the people. I mean, I see it as this highfalutin thing, but it it wasn't like that. I did, too. I did, too. And sometimes I still do. But that's because the people who are in it or who will go to it, they make it so. And there's no need to be like that. There's no need for pretentiousness. You know, I'm an ordinary girl doing an extraordinary job. And I just think it's an art form. And I'm trying to create art. I'm trying to communicate with the audience. And you can't communicate with the audience if you think you're above them. Like, seriously, you know, I don't know. And also as well, it is perceived as being elitist as well. I think that's got to do with the cost of tickets and stuff like that. But I, you know, I have to say, sometimes it's justified because you're paying a huge orchestra, a huge chorus, sets and all. It's a huge undertaking, big project. But there are ways to access opera that's not expensive. You know, there is. And even this, like to see an opera, it's pity that we can't act it out because of the coronavirus. It has to be a concert format. But even that is a privilege to be able to hear in these times. We're so privileged that Irish op- Irish National Opera have invited us. Like I'm so delighted to have the job and I'm very grateful to Fergus Shields for the job. And um, under the regulations and everything, their safety comes first. So it's wonderful to have this opportunity where we can have so many people, 100 people, working together under um under restrictions during a pandemic it's it's an honor so i hope people appreciate that and we'll all tune in on saturday yeah. the 13th for the live stream so you're going to be basically doing this to an empty theater will that be a new experience i presume with dress rehearsals and stuff you, you're used to doing things to, before the yeah. audience comes in but to actually do the full performance with no audience is that going to be weird do you think well, I've done a few online things now where um, there has been nobody in the auditorium. And then I've done things at home straight to camera. So I've no problem working straight to camera. And I I suppose as well, uh, the live stream is on the 13th and the week previous we're, we're in like we've been recording. So in a way, we've been singing it to a microphone. So it'll kind of feel like we're just continuing because it's right. again into a microphone. So um but of course, you love the reaction of the audience. Like I love getting on stage and being able to communicate and to get a reaction back or to see the audience because you feel like you're seeing somebody. Again, what your audience, that your own listeners can't see at the moment is that we're talking on Zoom and we can see each other. It makes yeah. the interview uh, easier. Definitely. You know, because you feel like you can communicate to somebody. Of course, your listeners can't see that because... They're just listening, but that's the way we're doing it at the moment. And it's, yeah, it's so important. Yeah, no, I think so. Um, And what do you think about the arts in 2021? I mean, this year, obviously, you've had everybody who's a performer. It's just been devastating, I think, for for so many people. Um, Do you feel like the light at the end of the tunnel now? Are you starting to book in things? And what what, what's the story? Look, I'm in a good place now because I'm working, but I'm aware of the fact that people, even, there are many people that might even be listening to your podcast who are in uh, are in the entertainment industry and the arts 
sector and they're not working. So that's why I mean, I'm so grateful to have this job. And I don't mean to kind of go, oh, it's so great working because I know at the same time, there's a lot of people not working. But I've been in that position as well, of course, because of the pandemic. And I know what it's like not not to be working. And you can feel like it's Groundhog Day. It can be a little bit depressing. And when you say the light of the tunnel, if I ever hear anybody saying the light of the tunnel once more, I kill them. <laughs> you can't see the light of the tunnel if you're in the middle of the tunnel. You know, you just know that you're going to come to the end. But, you know, it is very difficult to say that to somebody because you can't say to somebody, oh, it'll be grand because that's you can't take away from their suffering or how they're feeling. And we have to be aware of that and wary of that. And a lot of people are suffering, not only in my sector, but you know, things that we're not talking about is the the high rate of suicide in Ireland and everything like that. We have to be mindful of that. But getting back to your specific question in relation to the arts, I I do think that everything will open slowly because it'll have to. You know, the vaccine is coming and it's been implemented around the country. So I do think everything will open up slowly. But where we'll be after that, I don't know. Like at the start of this pandemic, a lot of things were, for me, cancelled, but they were postponed. So not really cancelled, postponed. But then as the virus, the pandemic continued, nobody could postpone because they didn't know how or when. So a lot of things were just cancelled. And those things will not be rescheduled because there's already things planned in advance. So for some performers who have and maybe who had the diary full for 20 or for 2020 and 2021, they might only have a few things going into 21, 22, 22, 23. Luckily for me now, a few things for 22, 23 already, which is great. But, um, you know, we'll see. Live streams are a brilliant way to support the arts at the moment. You know, like I've 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 certainly gone to the theatre in from my sitting room a few times during this pandemic and I, I felt really good buying the tickets, you know, no, no supporting. So tell people uh, how they can get tickets and, um, you know, it's it's happening on Saturday. It's a one off streaming. Isn't that right? It's a live streaming. Yeah. Um. so if people want to uh, watch on Saturday night, the 13th, they can do so. Uh, it's at 7.30. And what I would say is make a night of it, guys. Get dressed up. Get your glass of wine, your glass of Prosecco, your glass of Champers or whatever you want. If those are not, if for anybody who's given up drink for Lent like me, you can still enjoy yourself and you can open your popcorn and your sweets. If you might give them up as well. Holy God. But uh, <laughs> we don't mind if you make noise because you're on the other side of the screen. It's the first time you're allowed to make noise during an opera. And you can even eat your dinner. In front of it, in front of the screen, and just enjoy yourself. It's it's great opportunity to see to see an opera. And if you haven't seen an opera ever, it's definitely a great introduction because it's a wonderful piece. This opera is definitely one for everybody, and it's on this Saturday. And you can get more details on Irish National Opera website or the Borgash NG Theatre. Brilliant. And we'll put up the details on our blurb for the podcast as well. I mean, I have tried to right. get to be able to sneak into the theatre myself dressed as a cleaner or something, but there's no go. The very, very tight restrictions. So I'm going to be at home. Oh, no, you're not allowed No, in. I know. I you tried them. <laughs> but I'm going to be sitting with my, uh, yes, I think I'll have some champagne and toast you all. And I, I'm sure it's going to go really, really well. And I hope you sell loads of tickets. Oh, listen, I'm really looking forward to it. And then also after that, on the 29th of April, I'm doing a concert live from the National Concert Hall with Sterbla Brosnan on piano, Alva McDonough on cello and Linda O'Connor on violin. So it's me and my beautiful trio, piano trio, beautiful ladies 
And we are going to do a live performance live from the stage on Thursday, 29th of April. And for more details on that, people can go to the nch.ie and uh, check that out too. That would be good too. Or do you know what? Buy tickets for the two of them and support us all. Two very different things, an opera and a concert. I think that sounds great. And we're so happy to have you back a year later. It feels very weird at this time because you're now going, oh God, we had that interview and then Carmen was cancelled and it's this... It's interesting that you said earlier at the beginning of the interview that it feels like the year is erased because you're back now, which is a nice way to put it. You can kind of put it behind you a little bit. Yeah, because, you know, I was kind of mourning my, in a way, my, you know, missing my work. And I'd say mourning very lightly, of course, because obviously I lost my father and mother-in-law and friend. And I don't want to kind of make it out that this, my, my job is is more detrimental than the death of a loved one it's not but it's still something that really affected me and affected not only my financial uh, situation but my mental health as well so to be honest now that I'm say back on the road and singing again I I I I try to kind of go back to those feelings and how did I feel a couple of months ago and I can't because I'm not there. I'm in a different place now and I'm I'm happy again and motivated again. And yeah, it's just a different feeling. So yeah, in a way, it does feel like that year has been erased. Well, I can hear La Bohème being practiced right as we speak outside this door. So I know Fabulous. I know for a fact that it's beautiful. Well, the bit that my kids are doing anyway, but I'm sure yours is amazing as well. And I would urge everyone to buy a ticket to that and to your gig in the concert hall on the 29th. Celine, it's been lovely to talk to you and the best of luck for the rest of this year and the years ahead. Thank you so much. God bless. Bye bye. Thank you very much to Celine Byrne. And if you want tickets to Labo M, go to boardgoshenergytheatre.ie. All the performers would appreciate the sport. And that's it for today. Happy International Women's Day, whatever you were doing. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Email us, the Women's Podcast at Irish Times or find us on our social channels at IT Women's Podcast. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.